Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... When you hear a slogan like trans women are women, what do you mean by woman? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we have a really exciting episode. Kara and I will get into Pride and Prejudice a little bit later, but to start off, we are joined by Dr. Abigail Favale, who is the Dean of the College of Humanities at George Fox University and the author of Into the Deep, an unlikely Catholic conversion chronicling her conversion from evangelicalism through postmodern feminism and ultimately into the Roman Catholic Church. Dr. Favale, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Today we are talking about gender theory and some of the ways that the word gender is used and the ways language is used by proponents of gender theory to challenge natural understandings of the human person. If you want to learn more about the church's guidance on this issue, in the episode notes we will have links to a couple of resources, one from the Vatican's Congregation for Catholic Education and one from the USCCB. I want to clarify at the outset that this conversation takes place in the context of Christ's command to love one another as he has loved us. We're going to be speaking pretty critically of some beliefs that people hold very strongly, but it's because we love them as children of God. We don't hate anybody, and certainly not the people who have struggled with these issues. If any listeners use what we say to perpetuate hatred or bigotry against people with any form of gender identity discordance, they will have distorted what we have said, because we don't support any form of hatred or unjust discrimination. These people have already suffered more than enough, and our goal is to help heal it by understanding the truth. So let's dive in. Dr. Favale, can you get us kicked off by walking us through the history of how the word gender has been used? Sure. I think one of the challenges of talking about gender right now is the sheer number of different meanings the word has taken on. And so you have people talking about very different things using the same term. And so I think the confusion of our language in our language about gender is definitely because the term has had a very interesting um, intellectual history in the past century or so. So we often hear the term gender used um, interchangeably with sex. And that's a relatively new use of the term um, that developed in the 20th century. So if you if you look, for example, at feminist history, you'll see in first wave feminism in the early 20th century, as well as in works like Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which was written in the late 40s, you don't see the term gender used at all. You see the word sex. So Simone de Beauvoir doesn't say the second gender. She says the second sex. And I imagine for her writing in French, it's a totally different dynamic anyway. Right. That would be, yeah. Her most famous line one is not born, but becomes a woman. That I think is the seed of gender theory, even though she doesn't actually use the term gender. So the term gender really comes into the scene in the 1950s um, through the work of a psychiatrist named John Money. And he had this theory of the human being as basically a tabula rasa. And so gender identity, what he called one's gender identity or gender role is something that's purely socially constructed. And so he thought that if you change the social environment, you can completely um, change someone's sense of gender, their identity, or their role. And he had this opportunity, you might say, although it's kind of a tragic opportunity, to test out his theories on a set of identical twins, um, one of whom, twin boys, one of whom was mutilated after a botched circumcision. And so the parents of these babies didn't know what to do, and they went to John Money's gender clinic, which was pretty famous at the time. 
And he said, oh, well, you know, entrust them to my care and we will raise one of the boys as a girl because he's been mutilated in this way. And so that baby was put under further surgeries to mimic the appearance of female genitalia. And then John Money met with, I guess, the boys at least once a year. And they went underwent treatments. With, I don't even know what to call them. Treatments with John Money. He had them act out traditional sexual positions. I mean, it's really kind of dark stuff that we would now see pretty clearly as abusive. And eventually the boy who was raised as a girl rejected that gender identity and he was told the truth. And he eventually, actually very tragically, both boys went on to commit suicide as adults in the early 2000s. So he starts, so John Money started, these boys were born in the 60s. So that's when he started this experimentation. And for the first few decades, he was publishing, saying that his theories were a success. And his concept of gender as this social construct entered feminist theory in the social sciences. And so because that tragedy took decades to play out, even though his experiment turned out to be a catastrophic failure, by the time these men died, um, his theories had already been really entrenched in, in the academy. So that's where gender as a social construct comes from. And that was really embraced, like I said, by feminist theory. So second wave feminists made a distinction between sex and gender, where sex refers to biology and gender refers to the social norms that we associate with biological sex. Sex is not, sex is biological and gender is a social construct, right? So with that distinction, which I think there's some truth to that distinction, you know, the ways in which we express sex in a cultural context aren't themselves necessarily determined by biology. Hair length or wearing pink, right? Those aren't biological things. Those are cultural things that are associated with biology. Right. And I think one of the most accessible examples that's used to demonstrate this point has to do with clothing or hairstyles, something that's very changeable and seen as very arbitrary. Right. So if you talk to, I would say, feminists of a certain age, they <laughs> probably are still working with this understanding of gender. But what happened really is that the distinction or the wedge between biology and culture really ended up becoming quite a chasm. And so in the third wave of feminism in the late 80s and 90s, theorist Judith Butler really began to take the reins of gender theory. And she began to argue that gender and sex are both socially constructed. And so how we perform our gender in society creates the illusion of an essence. And so anything that we see as a gender essence is really a social fiction. And I think her theories have had a pretty significant influence on where the idea of gender has gone in our culture, even though it's not always in line with her theories. And that's something I think that's interesting. I think there's a kind of a, a trickle down effect that's happened where you have these heady, obscure academic theories happening in the ivory tower. And then those kind of trickle down through the education system, through popular culture, and then they begin to take on their own kinds of, of meanings. But that's a brief kind of genealogy of how the term gender has changed meanings over time and has come to mean the many things that it currently means. 
Right. No, thank you for summing that up for us. It's it's funny you mentioned Judith Butler. I just finished reading her uh, book, Gender Trouble, one of her landmark works unfolding her theory on gender. Uh, and even though she's since pivoted her focus, she doesn't write much on that now. Yes. It's fascinating to read the extent to which she deconstructs things that we think are real. Uh, even proponents of gender theory in mainstream culture think sex is a real thing, but it's changeable and just shouldn't determine your, the role you play in society. But Butler thinks sex is not real. And she also hints that the individual subject is not real. Like, there's no such thing as a person, as if that is the sort of language that leads to people being oppressed. Because it pretends that this constructed idea is a real, naturally occurring thing. And so her rejection of gender is tied into this rejection of the individual person as a real thing. There is no doer, there is only doing. So in order to disprove sex, she ends up disproving a lot more. It's wild stuff. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think now that we have an idea of the context, it might be good for us to see how it's taken shape in a few different aspects of gender theory as it's advanced nowadays. And I know that as an English professor, the uses and misuses of language must be a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Oh, yes. One slogan, I guess, you that we see increasingly is the slogan that trans women are women, right? So this is something you see definitely in activist circles. And before we even get into this, though, I would like to just say a general disclaimer that activists categories and narratives are not always the same categories and narratives and language that trans identifying people use for themselves. And so when I'm critiquing these activist slogans, I'm definitely critiquing the framework that is used to interpret um, experiences that sometimes individuals interpret differently for themselves. Right. This is about the signs that we see in culture and not about the individual people these signs claim to represent. Right. Because I think when when you actually talk with trans identifying people, you'll see much more diversity in how they even understand what it means to say they are transgender or they're a member of the opposite sex. But there's not as much diversity when it comes to activist slogans and language. Those tend to be a lot more uniform. Um, So yeah, the idea trans women are women. So How do we get into this, first of all? Well, I was actually just reading on the Human Rights Campaign, the HRC website. Mm -hmm. And here's something that, that they say about this specific phrase. Trans women are women. When we say women, that word always includes trans women. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. A woman's gender identity is her innermost concept of being female. A trans woman's gender identity doesn't define or caveat her womanhood. It simply describes her journey to womanhood. So the first thing I notice when I read something like this is the fact that woman and womanhood is never itself clearly defined. And I think you will see that very consistently, that the term woman is always asserted, but is never defined. So when you hear a slogan like trans women are women, my first instinct is to want to ask that person, what do you mean by woman? Like, how, Give me a definition of what you mean by woman. Because there's an internal contradiction that's happening here. Because on one level, the statement trans women are women depends upon a shared understanding of the term woman as an adult human female. So often when men identify as tran- transgender, 
they will undergo surgeries and uh, medical treatments in order to mimic the appearance of female biology, right? So there's this attempt to perform or mimic what an adult human female looks like. But at the same time, that statement, trans women are women, completely denies that a woman is an adult human female. So there is this self-contradiction that's always happening. And the word woman is never really clearly defined. I mean, even here in that statement, a woman's gender identity is her innermost concept of being female, right? So there's a connection there to femaleness, even though femaleness as being connected to womanhood in a concrete and real way is then explicitly denied, right? So there's this internal contradiction right at the heart of this. Right. Because it's her concept of it, whatever that concept may be, because they don't flesh it out so much. But what they seem to be saying is a woman is whatever the individual person determines or says it is. It's up to the individual to determine what it means to be a woman or a man. Right. And at that point, the term becomes entirely meaningless. Like why, why would we even have the concept of woman if it's so open, if it's this kind of linguistic box that anyone can step into simply by a declaration. And I think that there would be some trans identifying people who are more consciously playing with that and have a more radically postmodern or constructivist idea that really these things aren't real. This this would be the very Butlerian kind of view that what we think of as man and woman, these are just social and linguistic constructs. And so we get to appropriate those terms however we want. But then you'll have also this language, which is not very Butlerian, almost like there's a gendered soul. My soul or my innermost self is female, but my body is male, right? So that's a very essentialist narrative that is pretty different from the postmodern. These aren't real categories anyway, so just have at it. Right. Those are very two two very different frameworks. Right. Yeah. On the one hand, somebody in that postmodern mindset, it sounds like eventually they're going to wind up identifying as non-binary, but they might even reject the notion of having a stable identity at all. It's just a fluxing expression or something like that. So that's where you get identities like gender fluid and gender queer that tends to refer more directly to that kind of play. And then on the other hand, like you're saying, you have someone who does tend to rely on more essentialist ideas. I am a woman or I am a man. I was talking about this with a friend from high school. She identifies with her biological sex, but she is in a relationship with a person who identifies as trans. And she was articulating how she thought about this. And she said, it's not the sex you were born into. And I asked her, what do you mean you? What's the you that preceded the body you were born into? And that's where it kind of stopped for her because there's no real reflection on what it means to be a person apart from the body. And in an earlier episode, we talked about how important bodily existence is. That was episode 59, Sacraments in the Body. But from what I can tell, there's not much reflection on what it consciously means to be a person. Is that your takeaway from the language that's used? I think you're absolutely right. And what you just described, that conversation, I think that's the way to begin having these conversations, to ask careful questions and to dig underneath some of the assumptions that I think people are taking for granted in the language they're using without realizing that they're importing this whole understanding of the world that they would probably reject if it were really laid bare for them. And I do think that 
the current understanding of gender that we're seeing in these activist narratives is very dehumanizing of the body and very denigrating of the body. It has a view of the body as this inert object that can be used and changed by the will. So there's this idea of the person as just raw will and the body as this materiality that has no inherent meaning or purpose in itself, which is a very denigrating view of the body. So one, one thing that's interesting to me as a woman, when I hear that phrase, and sometimes you'll hear something like, well, I'm a woman because my deepest self feels like a woman. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that, what does it mean to feel like a woman, right? Because if you are not a woman, then you must feel like what you imagine it would be to be a woman. So what are you, what does that mean though? Cause I don't, I don't actually know what it feels like to be a woman. I just kind of am one. And when I think about different analogies of that kind of thinking, it immediately seems very problematic and offensive. Right. And I think this is where we get into the division between trans-inclusive, quote-unquote, feminists and trans-exclusionary radical feminists or TERFs as they're uh, labeled, because the hypothetical person you're talking about in saying they felt like a woman they're implying there's a limited range of feelings a woman can have, and that's potentially pretty narrowing for women's social roles and expression. So is that to say that if a woman were to not feel that way, that she would not be a woman? Exactly. And this, this I think, is really important to highlight because one of the biggest critiques I have about this understanding of gender is that it's rooted in stereotypes. Because as soon as you take woman and man and completely separate them from the body, those categories from the body, from biology, then the only thing left you have are stereotypes. That seems to be a very regressive kind of move. So now we're in a we're in an era where, you know, a girl who doesn't like pink, hates to wear dresses, loves to play sports, instead of saying, wow, that's great. Good for you. <laughs> we're saying, mm, I wonder, maybe she's not a girl, right? And then right. that move is completely reinforcing these very narrow and cartoonish stereotypes about what boys and girls are and should be. And so I think that is, you're exactly right on that. And that's something also to point out. And it seems like we've identified two divergent ways of viewing the world that have been tied together to support a broad cultural agenda, but that really are not cohesive. There's the Butlerian postmodern notion that trans women are not women because nobody's a woman, nobody's a man. Right. You can just be whatever you want to be because you don't really exist. And then on the other side, it's the kind of essentialist, almost stereotyping of gender roles. It sounds like the postmodern side might be a little more internally coherent, but also way more challenging in ways that are not intended because it implies that no human beings exist. And on the other side, there's the less threatening but more vocal version of this. Oh, I guess there's one last thought I do have before we move on, on from the language thing. Sure. If you think about how transgender identities are primarily based in language and then also appearance, but a lot of it really is language, that explains why there is so much emphasis on language on the part of activists. So here's, here's a recent example. I recently did some HR compliance training. And for the first time, I do this every year, but for the first time, there were some 
slides about how, well, you shouldn't say pregnant woman because that's exclusive. You should say pregnant person. The, the reframing of language was beginning to sneak in. And then of course you see this in the emphasis on pronouns. So you will regularly see activists saying that not using someone's preferred pronouns is a denial of their existence. And the assumption is that this is a privilege that you and I as cisgendered people have enjoyed all along, that other people have used the pronouns that we would choose for ourselves or that we would consciously identify as. And so everybody else should be afforded the same privilege or the same right, they might say. This is a one reason why I refuse to, you know, if someone asked me what my preferred pronouns were, I would say the fact that I'm a woman is not a preference. In fact, there have been plenty of days when I would have preferred, you know, not to be a woman. It's just a reality that I have had to deal with and that has its own burdens, its own gifts, but there's a givenness to it that I actually don't have any control over. So even just the phrase preferred pronouns, immediately you're already, just that phrase, you're already making this huge concession that one's womanhood or manhood is a preference rather than a reality that you just have to reckon with. Right. And even those on the other side, some of them are already expressing the same objection that you are. They also don't like the term preferred because it makes it sound like they're just choosing these pronouns on a whim and that they're not the deepest part of their identity or however they would want to phrase it. But even with us, that's not why you're referred to as she and I'm referred to as he. It has nothing to do with what I want or what I deep down identify as. That's not what makes me a man. I was actually having another offline discussion with someone who disagrees, and she replied to one of our tweets on Marriage Unique for a Reason. And their underlying assumption was, you, Andrew, have a stable self-understanding that makes you who you are. Why can't these other people do the same thing? And it made me realize a misunderstanding we were having. That self-understanding which I have is not the causal factor of my being a man, but rather my embodied existence independent of my self-understanding. This disconnect contributes to their sense that we believe in an unequal discriminatory dynamic because you and I are allowed to identify however we want in their mind, and they can't. Yeah. So you're seeing a very different understanding of language and what language does. So language as shaping reality versus language as naming that which is real. Right. Right. So the fact that I'm a she and use she pronouns, it has really nothing to do with what my preference is. It names something. And it also, I think language connects us with community. It connects us with the biological world. All of those things that are beyond the individual are really denied in this understanding of language, which has much more to do with, you know, language should fit the individual sense of self. Rather, language should be naming these more objective connections between people and between human beings in the natural world. So really what you're saying is it's just nominalism again in a new medium. Yeah. So we're just back to William of Ockham again, I guess. Yeah, it totally is. And that's actually one thing I like to point out in my work, which is why I am not necessarily a gender critical feminist or a radical feminist, a rad femme. Um, And that's because I actually think that where we are now is an extension of some of the assumptions of feminist theory, which has always been very explicitly nominalist. Mm. So feminist theory has been very anti-essentialist and 
that's created a tension within feminist theory. Okay, well, if we're denying that there's this essence, this stable essence of woman, but yet we also want to have a coherent political project in defense of women, you know, that creates this tension that feminist theorists have always had to reckon with. And I think that now what we're seeing is the extension of that nominalism to its logical conclusion. And for people who may be unfamiliar with the terms we're thrown around here, both nominalism and essentialism have a few different meanings depending on the context. But in the context that we're talking about, can you just explain uh, both of those words, uh, maybe just essentialism and then nominalism? A basic definition of essentialism would just be there is some kind of pre-social reality to a woman or a man, some kind of essence or some kind of ground to that that is not purely socially constructed. So feminist nominalism has tended to look like a rejection that there's a universal stable category of woman, but it's politically expedient to use that category and so we're going to speak as though that category exists. So it exists nominally, it exists in language. So that way we can continue to use the term woman, even though we're denying that there's a pre-social understanding that grounds it. We covered a lot of ground with Dr. Favale, and it was too much for us to fit into one segment. So we will be continuing with part two of that interview in episode 66 in a couple weeks. So be sure to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Time. Turning from that, we are going to have a lighter conversation, but definitely not less interesting because we are talking about the Snyder Cut of Justice League with Kara. What? <laughs> no, we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Do you mind? I bet you read that book every year. I bet you just love that Mr. Darcy and your sentimental heart just beats wildly at the thought that he and... Um, well, you know, whatever her name is, are truly, honestly going to end up together? The heroine of Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth Bennet. She is one of the greatest and most complex characters ever written, not that you would know. As a matter of fact, I've read it. Oh, well, good for you. We did watch the 1995 BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, starring Jennifer Ellie, or Eel, or L, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and Colin Firth, which was released to universal acclaim and then made into a movie with Kara Knightley about 10 years later, released to partial acclaim, both based on the novel from Jane Austen, which was published in 1813. Kara, why don't you kick us off? Pride and Prejudice, also known as the greatest romance story of all time. I've never heard that before from anybody. That's just a truth <laughs> universally acknowledged. <laughs> Much like the uh, that a man who is in, in possession of a fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice is definitely my favorite. Actually, when we were talking about doing this, Goodbread said he hadn't seen it, which like I had some heart palpitations because I have I can't even tell you the number of times I've both read the book and watched the BBC version. I've also watched the Kiara Knightley version, which it's really not at all comparable. So we'll be putting that one aside. But yeah, like what is Pride and Prejudice? I feel like Pride and Prejudice is it's so fascinating, just the enduring love that people have for these characters. I mean, first of all, it's a character study in love, but also in just the way that people come to conclusions. I mean, her original title for the book was First Impressions. And we spend a lot of time in the book sort of working through 
the consequences of people's first impressions, the ways in which we are wrong about them. And I think it's it's really painting a new vision, especially for the time where I think you see this in the book where a lot of people are coming at marriage more as a financial transaction and less in a romantic way. And Jane Austen is basically putting forward a new vision of what marital compatibility should look like. And she sort of explores the different types of marriages and different types of relationships and really about character and what does it mean to be well matched with somebody, which I think is just an enduring topic. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that the woman gets the man in the end. That's always great. (laughs) (laughs) So good, Brad, as a first time watcher, I want to know, like, what was your your impression? Did you love it as as much as I do? Yes. What's your first impression of first impressions? (laughs) Like Tom Hanks and You've Got Mail, I've definitely heard a lot of people talk about Pride and Prejudice. I never read the book before, and I'd never seen the 1995 BBC miniseries up until just this past week. A while ago, I watched the Keira Knightley movie, and I remember liking it. But I went back, and I watched a few scenes from that after watching the miniseries. And it was like, in the miniseries, they were painting with a paintbrush. And then I remembered the movie... And it was like watching somebody try to paint with a fire hose. It was ridiculous. (laughs) No nuance whatsoever. I mean, in fairness, the BBC version is eight hours. Yeah, right. They have way more time to incorporate a lot of nuance and a lot of detail and a lot of rich characterization, which definitely pays off in the BBC version. And I very much uh, enjoyed. Obviously, everyone loves Colin Firth, and this is where his rise to stardom began. Uh, but also the the lead actress who played Elizabeth Bennett, she kills it and is actually American. I didn't know that until like I looked it up. I didn't know that. The British Broadcasting Corporation did a big budget miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, and they picked an American to be at the center of it. That's totally wild. That's inconceivable. But yeah, anyway, um, so this is uh, six episodes long. It's on HBO Max. And uh, yeah, I watched it uh, last week. Yeah, no, I, I very much enjoyed it. I like how directly the story is willing to engage with serious questions about what marital love is, what some people think it is. And how it takes shape in a society which is not necessarily informed by the conjugal understanding of the human person, as we are talking in parallel about in Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, which we'll be returning to in the next episode. So the main character, Elizabeth Bennett, uh, is in a family with four other sisters and their parents. They all live together. And the actress who plays the mom goes for it so hard. Oh my goodness. Every scene, she is chewing on the scenery and hanging from the chandeliers (laughs) because she is upset about something even if it's a good thing she's upset about it (laughs) and the dad is just constantly like needling her and turning the key to wind her up well here's a fun fact too about the bbc version the woman who plays mrs bennett apparently had not read pride and prejudice before she got invited to audition it's incredible how much she captures the essence of mrs bennett in such a short time because i mean It's really like she plays it exactly how I imagine Mrs. Bennett in the book, like 100%. Just, yeah, like every extra, everything is extra. (laughs) And then the siblings, Jane, the oldest, Elizabeth, the second oldest, and then Mary, and then Kitty and Lydia from oldest Mm -hmm. to youngest. And, you know, I started watching this and I sort of had flashbacks. This was a wrong first impression that I had. I sort of had flashbacks to Little Women, which also has a family of, well, four sisters in that case, but there's 
the pretty one and the smart one and the mean one and the rowdy one. And I thought the only difference here is the rowdy one is split into two. That is incorrect. That's not a fair characterization of either Little Women or this. But I was kind of thinking, wow, it kind of feels like the same sort of character taxonomy as like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something. (laughs) I I think there's something enduring about, you know, these different sort of personas and the way in which they make their way through the world. You know, Jane is well known as like the great beauty. And I think it's kind of interesting in that society, especially where people are extremely focused on wealth and their financial prospects. And it's assumed by literally everyone that Jane is going to make a good match because she's beautiful. That is you know, women's currency. And Elizabeth, in a way, is a little bit of an offbeat character because the thing that most defines her is just her, like, sharp tongue and her kind of willingness to be direct with people. Right, which is not necessarily prized in that society, I want to (laughs) say. Yeah. (laughs) It makes for a great showdown at the end of the series. Oh, yeah, I can't wait till we get to that. This book deals a lot with both first impressions but also different sketches of marital quote-unquote love what were you thinking that like what's austin's takeaway and how do you feel about what she's saying about marriage and love particularly as a catholic i really like how she approached it in a very methodical way because early on elizabeth lays out the mission statement for her journey either which will either be romantic or failing her criteria will involve an absence of romance so she says very early on a marriage where either partner cannot love and respect the other that cannot be agreeable to either party which to us sounds obvious but was not necessarily the case back then and even now nowadays is not necessarily the universal norm in even stable marriages to say nothing of other romantic relationships as we've kind of seen in our discussions in men women in the mystery of love so that is what elizabeth is after and she says a little while later that she will only marry for the deepest love and that is the question that we are trying to resolve What does that look like? And the way we see that is through various suitors that she encounters throughout the story. So I kind of like this, you know, it sort of feels a little bit like Thomas Aquinas... surprise surprise examining like in what does happiness consist because he he goes through and he says whether happiness consists in wealth whether happiness consists in pleasure Mm. etc etc whether happiness consists in honor and elizabeth is sort of doing a similar thing whether the deepest love consists in mr collins the parson whether love consists in mr wickham the guy who seems really nice but we'll get into that later yeah mr wickham the charmer yeah right Um, Or whether love consists in Mr. Darcy or none of the above. And we'll get to Mr. Darcy, obviously, because how could we not? Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that like her suitors for sure, I think, exemplify some different ideas. And you also see you know, several other marriages. And I think, you know, from the you know opening Mm -hmm. scene, you see Mr. and Mrs. Bennett who, um, you know, Mrs. Bennett, as we've already mentioned, is like a total character. She's always in a tizzy about something, complaining about her nerves. And Mr. Bennett, you know, even from the get-go, is sort of needling her. And I, I don't know that they bring this up in the BBC series, but in the book, there is a mention from Mr. Bennett about the fact that he basically married her because she was beautiful. And he was swept up in emotional love. And it turns out that she was incredibly silly and he can't respect her. And so I think it's an interesting, like, from the get-go, 
you see that Elizabeth definitely is putting herself in opposition to her parents who do not respect each other. And Elizabeth mentions that at some point. Clearly, her parents don't respect each other. And like that is not a marriage that she aspires to. Right. We can go through these sort of different relationships. But, you know, we end up seeing who Mr. Collins does end up with, with Lizzie's friend Charlotte. You know, you see Jane and Mr. Bingley, who, while also, you know, a lovely romance, have a very different kind of relationship than, you know, say Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Yeah, they're like, they're sort of both beautiful, perfect people. (laughs) Elizabeth understands, well, that's not really an option that's available to me. I I live in the real world. 100%. Let's get into the suitors then. First on the docket is Mr. Collins, the parson who worships wealth, who is a cousin of the Bennett sisters, and is set to inherit a massive fortune from a wealthy benefactor outside the family. And for some reason, while he's romantically pursuing Elizabeth, which doesn't last long, spoiler alert, he goes out of his way to mention that they are cousins at every turn, as if that is somehow more romantic and attractive. It's very off-putting. I have no idea if that was like more acceptable at the time, but it is super weird. It was probably more acceptable at the time, but yeah, still super weird. And he is the most oily, obsequious person in the book, certainly. He is trying to get on the good side of anybody that might advance his position financially and socially. Another thing he is making mention of constantly is his benefactor, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Which they are made for each other. They are like so perfect for each other. It's just... He has somebody whose shoulders he can stand on and Lady Catherine has this little pet to lend a veneer of religious respectability with zero theological depth whatsoever. He is all platitudes all the time, except when he's giving like very off-putting looks to the Bennett sisters. (laughs) I mean, I think his shallowness comes through in the fact that he arrives and his first he's like, well, obviously I want Jane. (laughs) You know when you see people who are just like, dude, she's out of your league. Like, obviously <laughs> not going to happen. Which is essentially what Mrs. Bennett says. She's like, oh, he, she's taken. I have Don't other daughters. That one. Yeah. But what's actually amazing to me, and I hadn't picked up on this in the book until the last time I read it last year. And it's really sad the way that Mary actually would have been the perfect match for Mr. Collins. Yeah. Mary, the third sister, is the quote unquote religious one. She's always got her nose in, I don't know if it's the Bible or the Book of Common Prayer. Fordyce's sermons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. maybe. Because everybody involved, obviously, is not Catholic. They're Anglican. And Mary is the most Anglican. Her whole character pretty much consists of leering at anybody who's having a good time, playing church music and quoting spiritual exhortations for her sisters to be better people, but without any sort of invitation to Christ or anything like that. Uh, So that's Mary's character, (laughs) which would have been perfect, like you're saying, for Collins. And he's... She clearly likes him. Like she's, you see it if you're looking for it. It's a little subtle, but she's clearly like wanting his attention. And he can't even see that Elizabeth isn't interested in him. He's just so self-absorbed. He's like, well, obviously I'm the one who's going to inherit the fortune of your family so duh you're gonna want to be with me (laughs) so it's so offensive yeah and elizabeth sees him coming a mile away so anyway for what it's worth this is where elizabeth has to choose to marry for advantage and definitely not sentiment and she does not collins proposes to her and she says no and then what the next day the next week he comes back engaged to elizabeth's bff charlotte lucas who's a very level-headed, intelligent person, too. And Elizabeth is really surprised. And Charlotte's definitely consciously entering into this for advantage and not sentiment, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, Charlotte is very aware of the fact that she's 27, 
that's quite old at that time to not be married. She is basically has no inheritance at all. So she's very aware of the fact that her family needs her to get married. And I don't think you see this in the in the BBC version, but in the book, they make it much more clear that like Charlotte is being calculating about Mr. Collins, which I think is, you know, meant to be in contrast to Elizabeth, who's in some ways, I think, a little bit divorced from reality. Yeah. And then uh, later on, you see the after effects of Charlotte agreeing to marry uh, this guy Collins. Every time they're in the same place and Collins does something weird, uh, which is often <laughs> Elizabeth will look at Charlotte and Charlotte will, will give her this look back like, I know, right? What a dingus. <laughs> it's also so well done where she's like, oh, I encourage him to be outside. Oh, he has his room on the other side of the house from me. It's very clear that she's set up their lives such that they have very little interaction with each other. <laughs> right. So much for Mr. Collins after that. We get the polar opposite where Elizabeth has the opportunity to marry for sentiment and not for advantage when she meets Mr. Wickham, who is in the militia, but grew up as the young ward of a different family, the very wealthy Darcy family. And we're given to believe when Wickham's introduced that Mr. Darcy kind of cut him out of the family and was cruel to him uh, and left him a pittance. So he has to join the militia to make a living there. But he's a charmer. Uh, and Elizabeth really likes this guy, which pretty much everybody does, except that everybody laments the fact that he's indebted to a bunch of people. She doesn't seem to care about that right away, right? Well, she doesn't seem to know that he is in debt yet. Okay. But she, I mean, they do know because he's very open about the fact that his inheritance, which was the clergy, was taken from him. Asterisks on the taken for now. <laughs> yeah, in his version. In his version of things. And he's constantly telling everybody about the fact that he's been wronged, his sort of plight in the world. And Elizabeth, even when she's confronted with it, she kind of dismisses it. Now, we haven't talked about Mr. Darcy yet. But Elizabeth does actually meet Mr. Darcy first. Oh, right, right, right. He's a pretty early character. And he has, you know, besmirched her pride by essentially saying to somebody while she was eavesdropping that he didn't think she was all that pretty. And so she did not want anything to do with him. And he is, you know, generally a taciturn, I believe was the turn of phrase they used. Taciturn. Thank you. <laughs> He's, yeah, he's reserved, he's haughty, he's basically like always seems like he's looking down his nose at everybody. So Elizabeth like immediately dislikes him, mostly because yeah. he insulted her. And so she's all the more primed to believe Wickham because she already dislikes Mr. Darcy. And I made mention of the fact the original title of the book was First Impressions. And so, I mean, Mr. Darcy made a bad first impression, let's be clear. But she underscores that by believing Wickham because it's what she wanted to believe about this guy who's insulted her. And I mean, Wickham, not only is he, you know, telling a tall tale, he's clearly very handsome. He's charming. Like everybody likes him. Um, he's a bit of a flirt. It seems to be well known that, you know, he would probably, you know, wink at any woman who walked by. He's, he's certainly in contrast to Mr. Collins, and yet he keeps sort of doing these things that should have raised red flags and yet somehow didn't with Lizzie. She just lets it go because she wants to believe the best in him, in part because I think she just wants to believe the worst about Mr. Darcy. Yeah. So there's no shortage of sentiment here, but the decision whether to marry him is actually removed from Elizabeth. He gets scooped up by a wealthy woman, and that's kind of the end of it at that point. 
she seems to understand that he would, of course, go for somebody who has more money because yeah. she has no money. So, of course, he's going for Miss King, although the only thing that's attractive about her is her 10,000 pounds or whatever it was. 10,000 pounds a year. <laughs> the people in this story, even people who are not poor, lust after money yeah. openly. I mean, Americans lust after money, but we're usually a little bit more indirect about it. <laughs> I feel like it's the only thing we're maybe a little bit more on the DL about than the Brits. <laughs> okay, so we, we've gone through Collins, we've gone through Wickham, we've met Mr. Darcy, but we don't like him at this point. But Elizabeth uh, spends more time around him in kind of mutual social circles, and they grow closer, at least closer than they started out, which maybe isn't saying much, but it's close enough for Darcy to develop feelings for her, which he doesn't really volunteer or signal openly because, like you said... He's pretty reserved. In the middle of the story, he lays his feelings out and proposes to her, albeit with a heavy dose of class prejudice. Oh, he's totally insulting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take a listen. In vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. In declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going expressly against the wishes of my family, my friends, and I hardly need add my own better judgment. Just what every woman wants to hear. <laughs> yeah, right. And she rightly criticizes him for expressing his affections against his will, against his reason, and even against his character. And hey, Lizzie has seemingly read some of the sentimentality portions of Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. She understands that love involves those things. She also here at this point, when she turns Darcy down, is deciding not to marry for sentiment against reason, as far as she is aware of the facts. And she's also not choosing wealth over her better judgment. Right. Because I, you know, I think in contrast to, you know, Collins would have been a comfortable life, but she doesn't respect him. Wickham, she, you know, would have enjoyed her time with him, but there's no money and there's no comfort there. And we'll put aside the fact that he's actually like a lying scoundrel. And then Darcy would have been like, I can't respect you. I think you're a bad person and you're insulting me, <laughs> even though the fact that, you obviously have an insane amount of money. Right. So, yeah, she says no to marrying for advantage alone. She says no to marrying for sentiment alone. And then with Darcy, she says no to marrying for advantage and sentiment together, but without reason and respect and character. Mm. And then the second half of the story involves a couple of different things. Her learning more about Darcy. And then there's some drama with Wickham going after the younger sister. I forget why Wickham's engagement to Mary King doesn't work out. I'm not sure if it's known at the time. So, you know, spoiler alert, Wickham is a total cad and runs away with Lydia. And once he runs away with Lydia, it comes to light that he basically owes money to like every person in town. He has all kinds of gambling debts. So whoever is her caretaker put their foot down about him. Somehow they knew he was a bad dude and did not allow this Miss King to get swept away by Wickham. Right. And Wickham settles for Elizabeth's younger, rowdy sister, Lydia, who doesn't care because she's interested in Wickham for sentiment and for no other reason. <laughs> 
because that's all that's all she has in life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And she's so mean to her family without being mean spirited. Like she is cheerfully mean. <laughs> it's so obnoxious. I don't know if I would say she's the worst character. I think for me that it has to be Mr. Collins. But she's a close second. I really can't stand her. Yeah. So uh Wickham runs off with Lydia and his bad character is kind of laid out and it's revealed that the reason Darcy cut him out of the family is because Wickham had previously gone after Darcy's younger sister who was 15 at the time uh, which even then was frowned upon so through this Darcy's character is brought out this is what sentimentality is supposed to gesture to it's supposed to indicate that the person you feel those strong feelings about has a good character which eventually Elizabeth learns Darcy does and it certainly doesn't hurt that she goes to see his estate and in all of its elaborate magnificence. <laughs> but that's not why she does it. She she still is holding fast. I could have been the mistress of all this. And she still doesn't until she is certain that the sentiment that she does feel for Mr. Darcy is well-founded. Yeah, what's interesting to me about her visiting is she actually seems to respect him before she feels sentiment, which I think yeah. is, I mean, it, it starts to really come out because she's talking to his servant who's there taking care of the home while he's not there. And she's already had this inkling like, well, he revealed to me the fact that, you know, what had really happened with Wickham and sort of embarrassed himself by telling Elizabeth that his sister almost ran away with Wickham. But she hasn't seen him since then. And so when she goes to Pemberley and starts talking to, you know, his staff, and they're basically like glowing that he's just the best master, so generous, so giving, kind and just. I think that the, that for her is actually the thing that kind of unlocks to give her permission to feel something more sentimental because his character has been confirmed. And I think she feels a little bit of like embarrassment that she was so totally wrong about his character. She had this deep abiding hate for him because he insulted her when it turns out that he's actually a very respectable and, and good person. Well, importantly, he does, part of why he's a good person is that he does apologize and make amends for previous mistakes that he makes mm. and previous, not just mistakes that he makes, but offenses that he intentionally gives having to do with his own class prejudice because he's obscenely wealthy. He does look down on people of lower status, but he apologizes for it and he takes steps to actually improve his conduct towards people who are on a lower rung in the social ladder. I will say he he was 100% justified in everything he had to say about the Bennett family. <laughs> <laughs> I think he improves his own understanding of why he doesn't like the Bennett family. Mm -hmm. Because in the beginning, he doesn't like them because they're rude, they're nuts, and because they're of a lower social status. Yeah. Then he arrives at a better understanding. Not that he now likes them. He still dislikes them, but only because they're rude and not because they're poor. Yeah. That's why he okays Elizabeth's older sister, Jane, marrying his buddy, Mr. Bingley, and actually, like, helps make it happen. That's why he provides for the rowdy younger sister Lydia and Mr. Wickham uh, so that they can at least live debt-free and sort of grease the skids so that they're not living in abject poverty and in debt. I took a far less generous view of it. It seemed like he was more making sure that, like, he did it for Elizabeth, but I think also partly for himself that if he was going to pursue Elizabeth, there's not like this problem faction. He's definitely doing it to clear up this headache for the family. Yeah. He doesn't love Wickham and he doesn't love Lydia. 
you know, he loves Elizabeth. Yeah. That's definitely why he's doing it. Yeah, you're right. I think he feels that he needs to do some kind of reparation for the fact that he didn't reveal Wickham's character after what he knows about his sister. So finally, after all that, at the very end, they more or less tell each other how they feel about each other, even though it's still very restrained. Uh, and they fall in love and they get married and they live. I don't think Austin would ever, I know she doesn't, but she would never say happily ever after. But they, they are at least, they have arrived at a loving marriage. And we have our, we have our definition. Uh, married love consists in this, which is mutual respect, mutual affection, and mutual understanding. Kara, what would you say to some uh, to people who don't have experience with Pride and Prejudice? Do you think they should read it or watch it? I mean, obviously. Uh, did you hear my opening? Good for this <laughs> romance story of all time. How should how should guys approach it? Oh, that's a good question. I think that first of all, we didn't mention all of the wonderful characters in this story. Like just from a pure narrative perspective, I think the BBC version does a particularly good job of bringing to life just so many really out there characters and like total personalities that just make it a really fun book to read. We haven't mentioned too much about like Lady Catherine de Bourgh and like her and Elizabeth get into these sort of slicing tete-a-tete of verbal barbs. But I mean, it's so amazing. I'm glad you brought up Lady Catherine. We got we to gotta talk about that because you're right. Lady Catherine owns every scene she's in. Everybody sort of bows to her wishes. And Elizabeth, throughout the story, even though she's always the smartest person in the room, she's always keeping it under wraps. But at the end, when Lady Catherine opposes her relationship with Mr. Darcy, they finally have it out. Uh, full out, neither side is backing down verbal fight. And it's awesome. It's so worth it. 100. I mean, I feel like if you're never going to watch the series, you should at least go and find on YouTube that scene because it's just so great. They're a little back and forth. I mean, Lady Catherine is used to everybody just, you know, giving in to her. And like part of the escalation is just she's so infuriated by Elizabeth, not talking back to her, but giving her in equal measure a response And I mean, that's part of what makes Darcy kind of come back and make an overture at the end. And he says in the BBC version, I think, I know how much you've abused me to my face. Surely you would have said the same to all of my relations. And the fact that she basically like didn't say how much she hates Mr. Darcy to Lady Catherine to him was like, oh, I've got a chance again. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of characters to enjoy in, in this, but I think for for men too, the narrative of Mr. Darcy, although you're you're seeing the, the entire thing is through Elizabeth's eyes, I think we see the way that Darcy grows. And I think a lot of guys would like to think of themselves as like a good guy. And I think that Darcy gives in a, a nice example of growth where he was actually a good guy, but he made some missteps. He sort of steps up to the plate in a way that I think is very aspirational. And he gets the girl by essentially showing more of his good character, not by being more charming. So I feel like in a way, this is sort of inspiring. And he's not, yeah, he's wealthy. And like, we can assume he's pretty handsome. But he is played by Colin Firth. He is played by Colin Firth. But that's not the real emphasis on like why Elizabeth ultimately ends up liking him. That seems a little bit more incidental. It's much more about like his character and, and the person that he is and that he sort of grows into, which I think should be sort of a hopeful narrative for most men. 
Did you feel that way? How did you feel about it? Yeah, no, I definitely felt that way too. I absolutely agree with everything you've said and we'll definitely be going back for either a, a read through or a rewatch at some point. Great. Well, I think we can uh, we can leave it there. Maybe we'll come back to Pride and Prejudice someday because <laughs> there's definitely enough here to merit further attention. If you just want me to like record all the things I love about it, that's fine too. I can I can just send that to you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can uh, record a commentary track. Uh, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Kara. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. But that's all right. That's all right. I put you out of business, so you're entitled to hate me. I don't hate you. But you'll never forgive me. Just like Elizabeth. Who? Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. She was too proud. Oh, I, I thought you hated Pride and Prejudice. Or was she too prejudiced and Mr. Darcy is too proud? I, well, I can't remember. Please share this podcast with your friends. It's really the best way to help a podcast gain listeners. But it also makes a difference if you leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.